We've been talking over these weeks of the fall season about givers and takers. It's been pounded into our brains week after week from the first opening chapters of the scripture all the way through to the closing chapters in the book of Revelation. We are seeing that there are basically two kinds of people in this world. Those who give more than they take and those who do the opposite who take more than they give. It applies to almost any area and arena of life. So we're wrapping that up this morning, and this is just an opportunity for me to remind you that moving into the readings for tomorrow that will take us all the way through the end of the year 2018, we have daily Bible reading guides available for you. I want you to ask you to pick one up on your way out uh, to take it, to put it in your Bible, to use it. Once again, if this is not your preferred way of receiving communication, you're going to receive these uh, daily Bible readings uh, that are all about God's pursuit of us. You're going to get them on your email subscription through, uh, through the church website. So just a reminder that readings begin tomorrow for the pursuit, encountering a relentless God. This is our Advent, our Christmas message, worship uh, planning guide, if you will, and you help us and you help yourself when you're uh, making yourself, making these readings available to you, use them, pray over them, and hopefully this holiday season will be one of your best ever, ever. So that's just to remind you of that. Givers and takers, I've chosen to wrap up this idea, this theme in our morning, weekend services by comparing a couple of passages uh, that basically, to me, talk about uh, this issue of giving and taking. What kind of person are you? What kind of person am I? Paul wrote 13 letters in our New Testament. Two of them were to a church in Thessalonica, Greece, called First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians. They're located way over toward the end of Scripture. If you've got a Bible in hand and wonder where you are, if you'll go to about right here, you'll be close. If you go to Revelation, of course, you've gone too far. Just head backwards, back through Hebrews, and you will find Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. Thessalonians number one, Thessalonians number two. We're going to compare a couple of passages, one from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and the second from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Then we're going to take these two passages and use those to help us understand how we should live. So the first in the comparison is 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 1, 2, and 3. God's Word says, Now as to the times and the epics, brothers, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. Okay, this is 
the fifth chapter of this first letter, Paul is wrapping up his discussion. He has touched on several different subjects throughout these chapters that we call First Thessalonians. But it's here that Paul launches into a discussion about the day of the Lord. In Scripture, more times than not, the phrase day of the Lord refers to the coming judgment, the appearance of Jesus from our perspective. We know the Scripture promises us that Jesus will return someday. And that appearance of Jesus, his second coming, his return upon this earth is capsule, is, is summarized in the phrase day of the Lord. So Paul is trying to remind them. And he basically tells them in this passage, the way I summarize it, is Jesus is going to come suddenly. He's going to appear seemingly out of nowhere. The people are going to be going about their daily tasks, that life's going to be business as usual, but just like this, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, just like the pains of labor will come upon a mother-to-be, as he describes it, he says, Jesus will return suddenly like a thief in the night. Okay, let's take that passage, just kind of put it over to the side here for a moment, and let's move to the second letter, which is just past the first, so it's just a couple of page turns in your Bible. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 4. My way of looking at these two letters is I've adopted the view of many scholars There's a difference of opinion, but most would say that Paul wrote both of these letters, of course, and that he wrote them pretty close to one another. If he wrote 1 Thessalonians on a given month and a day, it wasn't too much longer, maybe a matter of a couple of months at the most, maybe just several weeks. So 2 Thessalonians is a a follow-up letter. It is to clarify some things, and it is following pretty close upon the release of 1 Thessalonians. So if you are pretending that we're the audience and we received this letter we call 1 Thessalonians and we've read it, then it's not but a few weeks later that we get another correspondence. We get another letter from Paul. And here in the second chapter of 2 Thessalonians, beginning in verse 1, God says, Now, we request you, brothers, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Now, 
If I quickly summarize these four verses, there's a lot of ideas here, but the basic theme is before Jesus comes, certain things have to happen. There will be certain signs that appear before his coming. Now notice, Paul uses that same phrase. Back in 1 Thessalonians 5.2, he says, the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2, he says, don't be taken by surprise to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So over here in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, it's going to happen suddenly, like a thief in the night. In 2 Thessalonians 2, it's, don't be fooled that the day of the Lord has come. For there are certain things that must happen before his coming. So the obvious question is, what's going on here? Is Paul talking out of both sides of his mouth? Is he, did he have a change of mind? Even worse, is, is the guy mistaken? Has Paul kind of gotten confused here? Because here in the first letter, he says very clearly that you don't know it's going to come just like a thief in the night, so you need to be ready. You'll be walking down the street, and all of a sudden, the day of the Lord will appear. The day of the Lord has come. Jesus will appear. And then over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he seems to just back off and say the very opposite. Which one is right? Both are correct. Both of the views here make total sense when we have a proper understanding of where Paul's coming from and when we begin to understand that even in a passage like this, even in these attitudes, a whole lot about our mindset, are we givers or are we takers? Are we seeking to understand God's word and truth just so that we can take from it what makes us feel good, what makes us happy, which makes us feel justified? Or are we taking God's word and looking at the truth of it so that we can give life and give hope and give understanding to those around us? Well, See, the way I think we need to explain this is that there is a basic problem. And the basic problem between these two passages isn't a misunderstanding. It's not that one's right and one's wrong. It's not that Paul had to, to back up and change his mind. If anything, what Paul is probably kicking himself for is that he didn't understand how he would be so misunderstood in his counsel and his advice. You see, the day of the Lord is the misunderstanding. It's very clear that there were a group of people, there was a group of people that felt that the day of the Lord had already come. That's what he's talking about in 2 Thessalonians 2. He says, don't let anyone tell you, don't let some so-called letter from me, he says. So there were people fighting against Paul who were trying to 
upset the congregation and they were using any means necessary. And apparently, we don't know everything. A lot of things here, Paul takes for granted the Thessalonians knew about. I mean, we're 2,000 years removed. It's hard for us to read back into it. But apparently, the misunderstanding was that on the part of some, they felt that the day of the Lord had already come. You know, there's some people, groups, religious groups today, that their founding doctrine of the Jehovah's Witnesses is that the second coming of Jesus occurred, get this, on October the 1st, 1914. But it's been hidden. His return has been hidden. And heaven has been relocated until God in his infinite wisdom and power will reveal it to his chosen servants. So the misunderstanding has been perpetuated century after century after century. So Paul is trying to help us. He's trying to help them understand that when you talk about the day of the Lord and you talk about the appearing of Jesus, it's all true. It's going to happen. But our problem is, is we we have an unbalanced view, which means we need to have a balanced life. And if you can approach God's word, and if you can approach these issues that are everywhere, that aren't going to go away as much as we might want them to. And I'm talking about the preoccupation of people with the end of time and everything that's going to happen surrounding it. If we could get an idea and a proper understanding and a proper balance, then it will help us to be the kind of people who aren't taking, who aren't always trying to hoard and grab and make ourselves feel good about what we do and how much better we are than others. But it will allow us to be the kind of people who give, who give life and who give hope and who give clarity and understanding to the misconceptions about God that circulate even to this day. So what I want to do with the remainder of my time this morning is just to, to give you some, some guidelines about, about a balanced life, about you know the keys to, to seeing things as they truly are. And may God use his word to speak to us and to help us make the adjustments in life that will help us to be the kind of people he wants us to be. As I see it, our main problem is is we quit focusing on the things we know. And instead, for many believers today, we are focusing on those things we do not know. We are focusing upon those things that are out there that are mysteries, and we want to solve them, and we want the answer. And when we focus on things that we don't know for sure about, when there's no certainty around some things, then it causes all kinds of problems, just like it did with the Thessalonian church. When we focus not on the things we know, but we focus on the things we don't know, the things that are unclear, the things that God has not chosen in his word, at least if you look at it seriously, has not chosen to reveal to us. When those become our main focus, we're in for all kinds of trouble. One of those is... Focusing on what we do not know takes and diverts attention from what we do know. Now, regarding 
the day of the Lord. First Thessalonians 5, like a thief in the night. Second Thessalonians 2, there's got to be some things that happen before it happens. When that's what we focus on, is trying to unravel those things that are unclear, it robs us of our effectiveness over those things that we do know. And what do we know? Folks, if the Scripture teaches anything about this problem of evil in our lives, when all is said and done, here's the truth. Jesus wins. And all God's people said, I don't think you were very sincere about that. And all God's people said, absolutely. We do know that Jesus wins. God is the victor. Now, here's what's so wild about it is we don't have to look to the future and know that Jesus wins. We look back to an event called the cross when Jesus was nailed to a cross and he literally spent six hours from nine in the morning till three in the afternoon that Friday taking upon himself theologically. That's the only way I know how to describe it and I'm not good at it, but he took the sin of the world and he drank from that cup that contains our sin and he paid the price for our sin. And the very thing that to the outside world looked like defeat, a crucifixion, the cessation of breath, putting one's body into a tomb. But we know that Sunday morning, that tomb was empty. And we know that the ultimate victory came through the ultimate sacrifice. And that plops us all the way up to the future where we can say, though we don't have clarity about some of the things that must happen, we do know that Jesus wins. But what do we do, folks? We give more attention to Satan and evil than Jesus. Why should we be so concerned about an antichrist, about a man of lawlessness, about the son of perdition, however you want to look at it here? Why are we so enamored by evil, when we should be saying, hear me here, who cares? What does it matter? Put any name you want to on evil. My focus is on Jesus because he wins. So when we focus on those things we do not know, it takes us away, it distracts us, it diverts the attention from what we do know. And what we do know is what people need to hear. But there's something else that goes on here. When we're so out of balance here, when, and it's mainly because we're taking, we, we've got to know, and so we're taking out of God's Word without ever even thinking about the fact that our interpretation and our focus is so Of course, it's a waste of time and resources. To focus on these things is a waste of time. Now, I'm referring to the information that's given in this second letter, verses 1 through 4. He said certain things have to happen. There's got to be a great apostasy. That means rebellion. There's going to have to be a great turning away from God on, behalf, on the part of his creation. And I think we'd all have to say, that's happening. If there's ever the signs of the time that a great rebellion is going on against God, we would say it's happening right now in our generation. The thing is, it's been happening for 2,000 years. 
any generation could say, the great apostasy is upon us, the great turning away, people forgetting God, people turning away from God and turning to anything else that they can take. It's been going on since the beginning. But this man of lawlessness, this son of destruction, this this person, and indeed, Paul says it is a person. We've been so enamored with the identity of that person that all we seem to do is just take, take, take. We have nothing left to give until we can figure these things out. Throughout history, now I just made a short list. Each generation has identified this ultimate person who is Antichrist. The Roman emperors in the first few centuries were considered to be the Antichrist. Napoleon Bonaparte, he, had, he has a whole, there's a whole argument that he was the Antichrist. In the Civil War, if you were a rebel, you looked at the Yankees and said, that's the Antichrist. If you were a Yankee, you looked at the rebels and said, they're the Antichrist. This is, this is things that actually in history were written. So when our nation was going through the Civil War, they were calling each other the Antichrist. Hitler, I mean, if anybody fit the bill for being an ultimate manifestation of evil, it would be Adolf Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin. When I was just getting to be aware of world situations, it was Nikita Khrushchev, the Russian whatever he was that was considered to be a good candidate to be the Antichrist. (laughs) Here's one. Ronald Wilson Reagan. Why? Because we took that number 666 out of the book of Revelation. And Ronald Wilson Reagan, each one of those names has six letters. The problem is... The same formula worked for Vester Wolber. He was my New Testament professor at Washtenaw Baptist University when I was going to school. Folks, we laugh at this. But how many sincere yet misguided attempts to unravel things that we do not know? We don't know. And to divert one's attention... To focus on these things that we do not know. We will never know. Which leads me to another reason why this is fruitless. It's because when we focus on those things that we do not know, trying to come up with a definitive answer, what does it do? Here's the danger. It steps on God's authority. You ever looked at it that way? We need to let God be God. But I tell you, there's more attention given to the Antichrist and to Satan than given to Jesus. And it's wrong. Fifteen years ago, I sold a Suburban, our family automobile. I sold it through Craigslist. I met the guy on the church parking lot right out here on a Sunday afternoon and gave him the title to the Suburban, and he gave me the money, the cash. And it was several thousand dollars. He gave it to me in hundreds, twenties, ten. I mean, it was just, it was, I felt like a, I, I just felt weird. Anyway, I had this whole 
bundle of money. So I took it home and I've got this place where I keep money at home. None of your business where it is. (laughs) And I stuffed it in there. Two years later, I pulled it out, sorted through it because whatever I was saving it for, we were going to buy. So I pulled it out. A bunch of the 20s were counterfeit. We almost got in big trouble because it appeared like we were trying to pass counterfeit bills. But they looked so real. Now, there was a time if you took a $100 bill and took it back to your black and white copier, it would be a dead giveaway that it was counterfeit, right? But... 15 years ago or whatever was going on then, it looked real, it felt real. I'm sure if I smelled it, I would have said it smelled real. It was fake. It's counterfeit. And going back into, I don't think the guy meant, I think he just passed along counterfeit bills to me. That's that's my positive way of putting spin on it, you know. He didn't do it to me on purpose. Of course, he may have been laughing all the way down the street. I don't know. My point is, the Bible says this guy, this antichrist, this manifestation of evil, is going to be the perfect counterfeit to good. It's going to look real. He's going to, well, what did the Bible say? He's going to set himself up in the temple of God, displaying himself as God. So this manifestation of evil, whatever it is, is going to be real, real sneaky. It's going to be very, very covert. It's going to look like the real thing, but it is not. It's fake. It's counterfeit. But you talk about how our society has so twisted righteousness and God's character and turned it into actions and things that look good, that feel right, that cause us to want to stand up and fight for whatever it is. But more times than not, and ultimately when that time comes, It's going to be seen for what it is. When we focus on the things we do not know and try to spin them into whatever it is we want to take from them, here's the ultimate tragedy. We totally misplace suffering. See, the popular belief now is that we're believers, we're Christians. We're going to be zapped out of here. Call it the rapture, call it whatever you want. The only problem is, I don't really see the scripture saying that Christians are going to be worry-free and free from suffering. But I hear John over there in the book of Revelation saying, I'm writing this letter to those of you who were with me in the great tribulation. And I'm not here to argue the fine points of whatever your view of Revelation is. Once again, that's delving into things we don't know. But I do know this. That we are wrong and we are buying into a lie. 
If we had this idea that as Christians, we are not going to be called upon to suffer and to pay the ultimate price. I mean, it's too clear all the way through Scripture. Now, what does that mean? It means that we have hope that through our suffering, we have hope and faith that through whatever it is that comes before us, that we that we're true to the Word of God. So, what are those things we need to focus on? I mean, the things we do know, the whole reason Paul had to say, wait a minute, you, over, you, you over-interpreted what I told you there in 1 Thessalonians 5. I didn't mean for you to go all the way to the other end of the spectrum. Matter of fact, at the end of, 1, of 2 Thessalonians 3, he says, you people... Your busybodies, you know what a busybody is, don't you? Someone that involves everyone else in all the gossip and the lies that they tell. So you're, being, you're affecting other people, you're busybodies. It's bad enough when you just do it to yourself, but you're affecting other people. He said, here's the deal. If you don't work, you don't eat. These people become so enamored with, about the day of the Lord, they've just given up on everything. No reason to get a job, Jesus is coming. He says, if you don't work, you don't eat. Discipline yourself. Make your own, make your own living. Be responsible. Because when we focus on those things we do not know, that's the ultimate result. But when we do focus on what we know, sharing the gospel, folks, as I read through all this book called the Bible, I see that the sharing of the gospel is paramount. And I see that the sharing of the gospel requires a response from each individual. We know that. That's clear. So why don't we focus on the things we know? We also know that if we put our focus on Jesus, that everything else falls into its proper perspective. I mean... Let's be honest here. Paul has to spend about seven or eight verses on this subject of the end of time and the Antichrist and the man of lawlessness and all that. But it wasn't his main reason for writing. Before it's all this thanksgiving. After it is all this reporting of good things going on and a little bit of of judgment here at the end about not being lazy. But it's as though Paul is saying, okay, i got to talk about this for a little bit, but I'm only going to talk about it for a little bit because I'm not going to dwell on it. Because it doesn't matter to me what the guy's name's going to be. It doesn't matter to me what century he's going to be born in. I want to have as little to do with evil as I possibly can. And in order to do that... I am going to focus on Jesus. Songwriter got it right. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Yes, you want to sing it with me? Turn your eyes.
eyes upon Jesus. Look full face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. You almost sound like a choir. Let's do it again. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonder face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. In the light of His glory and grace. That's, that's our focus. We should look to Jesus. Because Jesus wins. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to... gather in this hour and worship you. And Father, I know that many of us probably came in here with our eyes on so many other things, upsetting things, distracting things, unhappy things, or maybe good things that just take up and captivate us. But Father, we come to the end of this hour and Hopefully our focus is where it needs to be. It's on you. So let this be our reason for every season, as we say. Let our focus on you be what motivates us, what drives us to do everything we do. Thank you for giving to us everything we need. And as we receive what you offer, help us to give as well. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We wrap up our hour together the way we always do. It's a time of commitment, a time of invitation. Some churches don't do this anymore. That's fine. We do. Where we feel that there are decisions that need to be made every time God speaks. Now, some of those decisions you can just pray through right now where you are. You don't have to say a word to anybody. You just walk out and Get busy doing God's will. But other decisions need to be, need to be public. They need to be encouraged by God's people. So if you're here today, you've never said yes to Jesus. Yes to Him being Lord of your life. Yes to Him being your Savior. Yes to Him being the one who can forgive your sin. That's, that's an important choice. And that's an understatement. That's the choice. And we want to encourage you. So if there, someone here today and you maybe you want someone to pray with you maybe you need some clarity on how do i how do i do this thing called asking jesus into my life we're ministers and deacons we're here that's why we're here come forward maybe you're here today you know the lord just never told anyone tell us maybe you've never followed him in believers baptism there's a reason that we have water up there there's a reason that we immerse people it's not our idea it's god's command So if you've yet to experience believer's baptism of your own choosing, let's talk about it. A church family, it's a big deal. Do you have one? 
When push comes to shove and you need God's people, where do you go? Where do you turn? Well, here we are. We're one of many churches. Key is you find where you can serve, you find where you connect, knowing that it's not perfect. And you sign up with us, you join us, you serve. How do you join a church like ours? Come forward. Then it's that, it's that attitude that probably pervades most of us. Okay, we spent 12 weeks giving and taking, giving and taking, giving and taking. What's the point? The point is to focus on the things we know. We know how God wants us to live. So whatever that means for your life, choose. Choose to follow Him. That's our invitation. We stand together, we sing, we wait for you here. As God leads, you respond.